Welcome to the National Security Institute's latest China 2020-21 event, Doing Business with China, How to Protect U.S. Interests. I'm Jesse Liu, an advisory board member here at NSI, as well as the former U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia and a currently a partner at Skadden Arps Slate Meager and Flom LLP, and I'll be hosting today's event. The National Security Institute is dedicated to finding real-world answers to national security law and policy questions, and today's event is part of NSI's multi-year project that focuses on China's rise and its increasing ideological, economic, military, and strategic influence. For the next event in our China CEO of Point Bello, a strategic intelligence firm, CEO of Tang Energy Group, and president of the Nolan Group, a business strategy consulting firm. Patrick has more than three decades of executive experience and insight in the global business arena, and he's developed expertise in building businesses in power generation and electric infrastructure, including companies providing sustainable energy solutions in China. Patrick has spoken before the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Aspen Institute, and the Milken Institute, and he's testified before the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission on Chinese investment in the United States. So welcome, Patrick, and let's get going. Thank you. Patrick, wonderful. Well, um, in one minute or less, what's the headline for our listeners today about doing business in China in 2021 and beyond? First, know what you have to protect. Uh, understand what's important to your business. Take actions to protect it. Second, under, understand what your counterparties want from you. Do they want capital? Do they want your IP? Do they want your management science, as, as they, they call it? Do they want your market share? Are they working with you to confer legitimacy on themselves? So that, that's it in a nutshell. A, a good example is Boeing. What is Boeing doing in, or what is Boeing's exposure in China? Well, COMAC threatens Boeing directly. Uh, threatens Airbus as well. COMAC seeks to take market share from Boeing and Airbus. So know yourself, know yourself. Terrific. Very, very good advice, I think, for doing business in China and in life as well. Um, so let's do a little bit of a deeper dive in some of the hot topics uh, surrounding doing business in China these days. And I'm going to start with CFIUS, uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is a group of a number of executive branch agencies and offices uh, that reviews uh, transactions involving a um, foreign company purchasing a U.S. business for national security concerns. And I remember when I first started working on CFIUS issues in 2006, not many people had heard of it. Some people thought it was a disease, um, but it is now a, a critical part of uh, doing business internationally. Um, and China, of course, is a major focus of CFIUS these days. So, um, Patrick, what can you tell us about sort of where, what CFIUS is doing with respect to Chinese acquisitions uh, and what industries might CFIUS be focusing on? Well, uh, CFIUS tend to, tends to act reactively. Uh, CFIUS needs to find a way to anticipate what companies might be coming to them with a request for uh, approval. Uh, one thing that CFIUS could do that, that I'm not aware of that they're doing right now is look at the 
National Defense Authorization Act and identify companies that are termed CCMCs or Communist Chinese military companies uh, from the NDAA or from executive orders that list Chinese companies that, that are problematic from the administration's view. <clears throat> the Communist Party under, understands how CFIUS works very well, so they can overwhelm CFIUS. And CFIUS is you know, perennially under-resourced and over-challenged. So at times, CFIUS does a great job. At other times, CFIUS misses the ball completely. An example of a, of a miss recently was a former PLA officer bought 200 square miles of Texas ranch land near Laughlin Air Force Base. And the 200 square miles underneath Laughlin's airspace allowed or would have allowed the Communist Party to correlate optical recognition of some of our frontline aircraft with thermal signatures, electronic emissions, all kinds of other other benefits that observation would provide. So CFIUS needs help. Uh, CFIUS has staffed up pretty significantly over the last few years, but uh, is your, your take that still not quite enough? Uh, it's It's got a couple of structural issues that I think it, it can't overcome without a structural change. One is the time frame that CFIUS has to respond. CFIUS has to respond in a time frame that is shorter that most Americans can apply for and receive mortgage approval. So the timing puts a crunch on the resources that CFIUS does have. And then structurally as well, CFIUS is in a position to act as the regulator and the devil's advocate. When uh, a transaction comes to CFIUS, both the buyer and the seller present it, and it, and it can look like a... Uh, balanced presentation, but when buyer and seller want the same outcome, it puts CFIUS in the position of both judging and arguing against that program or that that position. So if we could add a, something like a devil's advocate to CFIUS, a devil's advocate position, that I think would, would alleviate the burden that CFIUS has now and, and actually make for a better process. So how, uh, you know, there's a there's a view out there, I think, that um, any China related transaction gets uh, a very heightened level of scrutiny from CFIUS. Uh, and yet you've just uh, described a, a, a transaction that, um, you know, maybe should have deserved more scrutiny. Uh, what's your sense of how rigorous uh, is, is CFIUS looking at China-related transactions? And, and is there, to what degree is there any truth to, uh, you know, this, this view out there that, uh, that China-related transactions are harder and harder to get through CFIUS? Well, Jesse, you may know more about that than I do. My impression is that CFIUS is still over, overwhelmed. And, and Transactions involving a PRC, not you know, China can mean PRC, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan. So I'll say PRC rather than, than China, or more precisely a Communist Party or CPC controlled entity. So CPC controlled entities understand that they can overwhelm CFIUS by obfuscation, by starting with small transactions. Uh, 
or pieces of an overall transaction that which taken in a pixelated view looks fine. But if you aggregate the pixels, then you get a much bigger picture. And CFIUS is still trying to overcome that perspective that they have not had, but they're still working to develop. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you'd mentioned um, companies that are connected to the PRC's military establishment. So I want to kind of work that into the discussion. And there's been really a lot of focus on this particular area, I'd say, in the last year or so. Um, So can you kind of give us some highlights about kind of what the USG has been doing uh, to counter the influence of, of Chinese military companies over the last year or so? I'm not as good at that as a lot of other folks, Jesse, but I can tell you what the party is trying to do with with its, and I don't talk about the PRC military because the military that's in the PRC, it's technically a wing of the Communist Party of China. So I'll call talk about it as the CPC PLA because the PLA, or People's Liberation Army, is belongs and is controlled by the Communist Party of China. You know, imagine what it would be like for the Democratic Party and the Republican Party to have their own armies or their own militaries. It would be, it's something that Americans cannot comprehend without a whole lot of, a whole lot of work. So I can tell you more about the CPC's intent and with their military civil fusion program or, or strategy, they want the military to over overshadow all civilian activity in the PRC. So that that is also something that CFIUS doesn't know know how to to work with. It's it's just a a mindset that's entirely different. And it goes back even further. The the intent, the intent as people with legal backgrounds like yours understand better than I matters. And when when the the construction of the Constitution of the United States uh, legal system or political system or the Communist parties starts with either an, an intent to protect people from political parties, or on the other hand, to protect political parties from people, you have a very different outcome. So when the Communist Party shows up with a transaction that it wants to happen in front of CFIUS, it is trying to protect the party, and its its intent is not transparent. Its intent is totalitarian and obfuscating and obfuscation. So, other than CFIUS, which we've already discussed, um, you know, what are other tools that we should be thinking about to kind of counter what the Chinese Communist Party is is doing with respect to its military companies or you know its its kind of economic activities more generally? Uh, well, thank you for narrowing that that question. Let's leave the military to to the military. What we can do is as businesses or or people that are working with businesses is we we can address Communist Party controlled companies' access to capital. Uh, companies are doing bad things with. Capital, you know, we, or when I say capital, I'm talking about money, you know, whether it's money raised through stock sales or debentures, you know, bonds, 
uh, however a company can get money. If it's a company that is doing bad things with the money, like building detention camps in St. John, uh, we shouldn't let that company have money, or we, or we should absolutely say that company should not have American investor money. If there was a Poseidon one uh, bond issue several years ago, and several American institutions invested in it, and it helped build the CPC's first aircraft carrier. That's a bad idea. You know, Americans should not be investing in machines that are designed and built to kill Americans. Um, and that, I think, brings me to a, another set of questions um, about Chinese companies, although not necessarily kind of um, Chinese Communist Party control companies, but there's been a lot of discussion, again, in the last year or so about Chinese companies that are listed on U.S. stock exchanges. And uh, I think a lot of the concern focuses on the question of you know, whether or not these Chinese companies um, follow U.S. auditing requirements, uh, you know, whether uh, there's a risk that Chinese companies, uh, at least some Chinese companies, might be exploiting U.S. exchanges. Um, and, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, in the wake of, of Luck and Coffee's um, failure uh, in, to, to, uh, to or, or, you know, collapse in, in terms of, uh, you know, it's all of its fraud issues. Um, so, you know, last month, the, the Senate passed the Accelerating Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, uh, which would force Chinese companies and, and other foreign uh, companies to follow U.S. auditing requirements. What do you think of that? Is, is that a step in the right direction? And, and how likely is it to be effective? Uh, that's a complex question, but a very important one to try to address. Uh, the it's more of an expression of frustration that gets back to the difference in intent. Will it be enough? We don't know. Fundamentally, we need to, to respect Chinese companies enough to expect them to follow the same laws that we expect any American company to follow. If, if we tell a, a, communist, a Chinese company, in this case, a Communist Party control company is a whole nother matter. But if we tell a, a Chinese company that's legitimately owned by Chinese and not by the Communist Party, then those companies ought to be able to, to follow the same laws that we expect. Not only that, those companies that would be national champions, you know, coming from the PRC, understand and know at a gut level that to compete successfully over the long term, globally, they need the kinds of protections that rule of law provides them. You know, DD was a, you know, was a seismic event in some ways. You know, suddenly the Communist Party exercised uh, powers that it had reserved for a couple of decades, where people knew that the Communist Party could always pull DD's Communist Party or a PRC-based company's business license, different aspects of, of its business plan. When the party does that, it completely upends the work that Chinese have worked really hard to, to achieve over decades. So the, the seismic event is actually, it, 
perhaps is actually worrying to, to even great law firms like SCAT, you know, are you concerned that now that the party has shown they will actually exercise powers that they have reserved for a couple of decades and just completely upend a, a IPO of a, of a listing in the United States, does that create a liability for errors and omissions of disclosures or something like that? I mean, I think those are all really complicated questions. Um, but as we start to, we the United States, begin to um, you know, insist that, that Chinese companies uh, follow U.S. auditing standards and so forth, uh, should, should we be expecting that China will retaliate in some form or, you know, institute sort of its own um, restrictions? The Communist Party always retaliates. So, and we can't control that. What we can control are our expectations. And it is appropriate and fair and required and good in the long run to rely on our rule of law and to apply our rules of law regardless of a, a company's uh, domicile, regardless of a company's ethnicity of, of ownership. We still need to require those where, wherever we are. Not only that, Jesse, when we have requirement, when we insist on requirements for companies from China, as we do from companies from the United States or Europe or anywhere else in the world, it helps some of the folks inside the Communist Party say, see, this is the way that we ought to try to act. These ideas actually protect our people and actually give our people the chance for a higher standard of living in the future. Uh, and there are going to be obviously be people who are cynical that um, the Communist Party will, and anybody would have that response. But uh, you um, s- seem to be uh, more optimistic about, you know, the possibility for, uh, you know, change within the Communist Party. Uh, <laughs> that's a really good question. And within Point Bello itself, we that is one of the the discussion that discussions that brings the the highest level of intensity. Some folks believe you're never going to change the Communist Party. The problem with that is if you don't change the Communist Party, it becomes more fragile. As the party becomes more fragile, it becomes more susceptible to uh, horrible annihilation or breakage. So if Xi Jinping tries to add another term to his career, for example, or or more term to his tenure as the paramount leader, that makes the Communist Party more likely to have a violent succession event, and that could take down the party. And taking down the party could be an event that should scare all of us. So I would much prefer the party to change from within, even though folks in our own organization say, I'm too optimistic. Well, I think optimism is a virtue, so um, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Um, so going support it as well, but anyway. <laughs> um, well, um, you, you've done a lot of business in, in China, and we all know that China is an integral part of so many supply chains for so many goods uh, around the world. 
Um, and the a discussion about supply chain integrity has also been uh, brewing over you know, the last few years. Um, and in my view, Patrick, I, I sort of see two sets of questions. One is, uh, to what extent uh, are we in the United States or in the Western world more generally too dependent on China for our supply chains? And what, if anything, can we do uh, to address that if indeed it is the case? And then second, um, what is China doing about its own supply chain? Is uh, you know, China trying to reduce its, dependent on, its dependence on, on foreign firms and, and perhaps particularly on the United States? So um, you know, any insight you can, you can share with us about you know, either of those kind of issues and, and, and uh, you know, give us your, your thoughts on China's place in the supply chain and where it's headed? Oh, yeah. Um, we talked to a fair number of folks in Washington. We also talked to a lot of folks in between the coasts and the businesses in between the coasts, now on the coast as well, are actively changing their supply chains. Mm-hmm. They, they are in a way, pricing resiliency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I are, are both from uh, a place between the coasts. Um, we are both Texans, and so always glad to hear that Texans are at the forefront. Well, uh, we were at the forefront in not allowing the Communist Party-controlled, or the, actually the PLA-controlled company in Texas from being able to execute some of its plans underneath Laughlin Air Force Base, or airspace. So what, what we see in the, in the business world is that companies with supply chains tied to China are doing an awful lot to make sure that they have alternatives. So that's a, that's a bad thing for China or for people in China because it means that they're less likely to have ongoing jobs. They're more likely to have competition. But it, it's good, you know, and to the extent that it does uh, nurture competition within the PRC, that can be a good good thing long run. But in the short term, it's going to have job disruption effect. Uh, China or the PRC is similarly concerned about its supply chains. Uh, so it, more than the United States, is actively trying to decouple. And decoupling is a problem. Uh, the PRC and, and world economies are so entwined now. It's almost like the redwoods and on the on the West Coast. You know, redwood trees have great root systems, but they don't have cilia on their roots. So that means that the redwood cannot absorb nutrients. So it depends for its very life on fungi, fungi that will actually grow in into the redwood roots at a cellular level so that then the two living organisms can exchange nutrient or nutrients and other and other benefits so that they both survive. If you just rip those apart, you kill both. So you've got to be awfully careful about decoupling. That's that's different than the supply chain resiliency. If you're actually pricing supply chain resiliency, then you start to have a more deliberate and a more organized uh, isolation or renewal or isolation and renewal of supply chain dependencies. So I want to explore 
those issues just a, a little bit more and, and sort of going back to the question of, you know, how does the United States and our Western allies, how do we reduce our dependence on China? And I just want to, you know, throw out this question for you, which is, you know, it to to the casual observer, at least it looks like China is the source of, of so, so much that goes into the supply chain from ordinary goods like cotton uh, to um, materials that are absolutely essential for very, very high-tech products like rare earths. So what is the answer? I mean, do we, you know, what what can we do to reduce our dependence on China? And, you know, I've heard, like, we should be looking to other countries in Asia, Southeast Asia or South Korea or, or um, Taiwan, which, of course, has its own risks. Um, there are, uh, there's a school of thought that says we should be looking uh, at, at the Western Hemisphere and, and develop developing um, kind of supply chains that are closer to home. Um, what, what's your take on what the right answer is or right answers? I, I suppose there doesn't have to be just one. Well, and it's, it's a process. And my first comment for folks in Washington would be, don't try to do too much because already businesses are doing an awful lot to price resilience. A couple of areas that would be really important for folks in Washington to think about though are, are pricing uh, labor fairly and pricing environmental degradation. One of the reasons that the PRC has such a high percentage of the rare earths market is that they don't care what they do. The Communist Party doesn't care what it does to people and it doesn't care what it does to the environment. So, you know, St. John is a great example of what it does to people. You know, just because you're a Uyghur, you get very special attention that none of us would welcome. And, they, and so if you, if you price labor or human rights, you can say, you know, the, the, you could calculate it. There are a bunch of, of accountants that can figure out it takes so many hours to mine and process. You, know, you pick the rare earth, molybdenum, say. And then you, then you could set a standard for that. Similarly, you can say, what does it take to protect the environment? you know, from a from a molybdenum mine, uh, price it. And then you can have a at the shoreline tax, which is unpopular for a lot of folks, especially in, in business, but it might be a good idea. It'd be at least be a good idea to discuss because then you can say, okay, there's an environmental component to uh, importing this rare earth. There's a human rights component to, to importing this rare earth. Let's price those. And any buyer of those rare earths anywhere in the world would pay the difference to maybe the U.S. Treasury. Y'all can figure that out. That's uh, the right place to put the money is a whole other question. But put it in a commercial environment so that people, so that businesses will make decisions that actually help rare earth, rare earth mines first operate with more respect for human life more respect for the environment, and then diversify the supply of rare earths. They're all over the earth. And what about on the on the Chinese side in terms of you know the China's effort to uh, reduce its dependence on uh, foreign firms, foreign countries for its supply chain? I mean, where do you what what what, what can we do to to slow that down? Oh, I don't know that you can, because the Communist Party makes decisions that are based on protecting the Communist Party. 
Chinese Chinese companies would make different decisions. You know, they they would diversify their supply chains uh, if if they had had laws that protected them from the Communist Party. They would act much differently. But because they are controlled by or beholden to the Communist Party, they make non-economic decisions. And that actually gets gets to a really important area. One of the things that the United States has done better than almost any other community ever in history is allocate capital in a way that rejuvenates capital and raises the standard of, of living for, for all people. Now, we're not always good at how we do that. Actually, we're, we're often good at how we do that. There are plenty of ways that we can Im- improve. But if you compare our capital allocation system to the Communist Party's capital allocation system, our capital allocation system improves people's lives at the expense of political power. Um, In PRC, the allocation of capital serves political purposes first and then fails to lift lift the standards of living for the the people in that jurisdiction. Am I going too far afield for you, Jesse? No, I don't think so. But I think you've just um, kind of brought us to a potential new topic, which is to talk uh, more directly about U.S.-China trade. Um, again, another hot topic. There are so many big topics to to discuss when uh, you know you, you want to talk about uh, U.S.-China. Um, you know, business relations. And so what's your take on kind of where we are now with respect to uh, trade relations between the U.S. and China? There was kind of, uh, you know, there's been a lot of activity in the space in the last few years. Uh, The last administration was deeply engaged in um, kind of working through some of these issues. Uh, Obviously, many of the issues uh, have not gone away and and are still issues of concern. But kind of what's what's your take on where we are as we sit here in August 2021? Oh, my. What a broad, what what a broad invitation. Well, let's start broadly then. Uh, Since I've been working with companies from China and before when we were studying uh, working with, with companies from China. We saw that with Deng Xiaoping that China started a, a phase that was that was very likely to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And it doesn't matter where in the world those people are, lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty anywhere in the world is a really good thing for the rest of the world. So in a way, that raise, you know, that rise in prosperity for those several hundred million people in China raised the global prosperity level. Now, was it perfectly level? Heck no. It was imbalanced. It's like a true Texan. Well, might have been a little true if we weren't on a recording, but it, it did raise the boats of all. Now the Communist Party is acting in ways to revert, call it Xi Jinping's Communist Party, is acting to reverse the gains of Deng Xiaoping's Communist Party. And that's a, that's a shame, especially for the people in China, and it's a danger to the rest of the world. So while Xi Jinping is pulling back and uh, causing lots of trade difficulties, he's actually endangering the rest of the world. Now, confession, uh, 
three or four, four well, at the beginning of the Trump administration, we argued both very uh, intensely, but, but very privately that sanctions were a bad idea. I have frankly been surprised at some of the positive effects that have come out of those. However, sanctions uh, have a shelf life. You know, the, the benefit of their shelf life or their, their benefits decline with age. And over time, those initial benefits will degrade. It would be better to have the discussion to say, what can we do with them now? And it might be a better position. We at least ought to talk about it. If if President Biden said, uh, General Secretary, see, tariffs, if you pull back from the aggressive offensive, you, you know, the, the aggressive position you've taken with Hong Kong, you know, roll it back to June 30, 2020, or maybe before. You do that, Xi Jinping, and we'll remove all tariffs. Now, what would that do? That would put Xi Jinping in one heck of a bind because he would then be in a position to say, no, the prosperity of Chinese people is not worth compromising a Communist Party of China political position. So it it, it would it would present a terrible dilemma, or actually, in my mind, a wonderful dilemma for Xi Jinping. <clears throat> it would also attract allies, I, I hope, I, I imagine. This is why this would be a discussion, not a, a recommendation from Patrick Genovine in Texas. But advancing the discussion could help a lot. You know, we ought to be... Sorry, this may be going too far afield, so rein me back whenever you, you need. But there are other things that we, we ought to be doing, whatever we can right now, to creating discussion within the Communist Party. Because right now, for their sake and our sake, right now, Xi Jinping is isolating the party from rigorous debate, and that will lead to the party making terrible mis mistakes. Another example is something we could talk about rather than saying we should uh, withdraw from the Olympics in 2022 because both the Trump and Biden administrations have said that the party is committing genocide in, in St. John. Instead of making a de declaration like that, we said, well, let's talk about it. Let's see what the other options are. Should we delay the Olympics? That Because that forces more conversations on the Communist Party. Okay. Well, I've gotten way far afield from. from. <laughs> no, but it's very interesting and important because I think all of this is a backdrop to kind of the, the narrower topics that we were discussing about doing business in China. Um, so it's important to, to uh, get those out in, into the open. Um, I want to talk a little bit about China and technology, which of course is, is underlaying, you know, all the topics that we've talked about. Um, and I wanted to ask you about China Standards 2035, uh, which is a 15-year strategy that would um, see global tech standards being set by Beijing uh, and, and focus on Chinese firms and technical experts. Um, and it's clearly just one piece of um, China's overall strategy of economically, politically, militarily, culturally. Um, What's what's your take on you know China standards 2035? Do you think it poses a risk to 
the United States uh, and our allies. It does, absolutely. And again, it gets back to intent. And it's a much longer strategy than a 15-year strategy. The party's been working on this strategy for I don't know how long, uh, because we only know when we found the term, China Standards 2035. But it's it's an objective day that by 2035, the Communist Party wants to control all standard settings boards around the world, all of them. What kind of, is this carbon steel or stainless steel? Is this an appropriate 5G uh, technology or is another better? You know, what, will, what will the purpose of 5G technology be? Will it be to surveil and disrupt or will it be to, to facilitate the use of end users? <clears throat> so when and Xi Jinping talks about China standards 2035 as Commanding the heights. So Xi Jinping wants to command every height he can. He wants you know, the, the party to control east, west, south, and north, and, uh, the, and the, the center. He, he wants the party to control it all. And, and if the, the Communist Party, with its totalitarian bent, controls everything, people all over the world will suffer. So standards matters an awful lot. Historically, they actually the U.S. Department of Defense established some of the very first standards body. One of the first one was a steel standard when we were shooting rifles in the First World War, and the barrels, you know, some of the barrels got hot and bent. It was because it was a different kind of steel than some that shot a bunch of bullets and got hot but did not bend. So the DOD understood its interest in defining standards. Now take you know, take that forward to patent pros. You know, patents actually set standards, and so the, it becomes a, a a spot to accumulate wealth, to accumulate and protect you know intellectual well, intellectual property. So standards matters an awful lot. Xi Jinping wants to control them so that he can stuff whatever ideas he wants to through the through the standards that he sets. So speaking of standards, one of the critical standards, if you can look at it this way, uh, is the fact that the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency um, and access to the U.S. financial system is an absolute necessity for any commercial enterprise seeking to do business internationally. Uh, With great fanfare, China announced the digital yuan not long ago. Um, Do you think that presents a risk in terms of the hegemony of of the U.S. dollar uh, as the world's reserve currency? Uh, It creates... Huge risk, Jesse. Uh, it's a really complex issue, uh, and we don't have time to, to delve into all of it. So, whatever I say is going to invite criticism, but that's fine because discussion is is important. Right now, the United States, because it buys more stuff in the world than it sells, it floods the world with working capital, working capital denominated in U.S. dollars. And 
because we've had a stable system for so long and because we've been able to rejuvenate capital so effectively for so long, the rest of the world is coming. Uh, some economists would say that that adds about $3,000 to every American's wealth every year. There's not a country in the world that wouldn't like that, that doesn't want that. Every country in the world would want that. Uh, Xi Jinping's PRC not only wants that for itself, it wants to take that away from us. So yeah, in a way, Xi Jinping would want to take $3,000 a year away, away from every American. And again, it gets back to intent. You know, what, you know, one of the reasons that the dollar has been an acceptable world currency is because our intent generally, and when we're at our best and we're not always at our best, protects individuals, it protects their lives, it protects their freedoms, it protects, it protects their expressions, their intellectual property. Xi Jinping allows none of that. You cannot express yourself freely in China. Your intellectual property is yours until he decides the Communist Party should take it away. So which do you want in the world? A US dollar-based economy, world economy, or a yuan digital or yuan-based economy? Because the rest of the world says, no, we don't want a renminbi-based economy. We want a dollar-based economy. Xi Jinping and the Communist Party have to come up with mechanisms or constructs to, to make that change. The digital renminbi does exactly that. It avoids SWIFT. It avoids all, all the, the normal pathways to capital from, from one part of the world to another. I feel like I'm... <laughs> so what's the answer? Patrick, we're, we're looking to you for a solution. Uh, and if you um, you could do whatever you wanted, what, what do you think is the correct response to what China's doing with the digital yuan? Well, the, the, the only thing we can do in the long run is make sure that we continue to protect the lives and freedoms and expressions and creativity of people regardless of what makes them diverse, whether it's a political party or a gender or sexual identification or a race or a religion or where they live, uh, protect all those people equally, even if they come from China, even if they come from the PRC, but, but don't let the, but make dad gum sure that we, that we protect everybody's creativity so that we rejuvenate capital like no other system in the world has ever done before. That's how we protect it long run. So along those lines, in um, November of 2018, the Justice Department announced a new quote-unquote China initiative, uh, which was uh, a marshalling of DOJ resources to investigate and prosecute uh, trade secret theft by China, economic espionage by China, and so forth. Um, and do you have a sense of, of whether the China initiative in kind of almost three years of operation has been successful in cutting down on uh, trade secret theft and economic espionage? I think it has been partially successful, and that's good. I think it's horrible that the, the DOJ named it the China Initiative, because what we need to be doing is expecting everyone, whether they're from China or Europe or Texas even, to be to follow the, the same laws. I mean, 
Yeah, you, Texas is its own republic, don't forget. <laughs> well, I'll, yeah, <laughs> for good and bad sometimes. Anyway, per, it, treat everybody the same and, and don't just single out, out China. I think that was m- maybe a naming problem, but it did, it did recognize that the Communist Party of China does have something like 600 different talent recruitment programs. And the party is assiduous in its diligence and how it uses uh, myriad programs to, again, work you know, like pixels to, to be able to advance one pixel or another, one program or another, to form an overall mosaic that is very favorable to the PRC or to the Communist Party, but that has the has a way to infiltrate an area or uh, enter an area, whether it's a geographic area or an intellectual area, any any kind of frontier at all, <clears throat> that it can then take that that information back to to benefit the Communist Party. That gets back to rejuvenation of capital. The Communist Party cannot rejuvenate capital, even while even though it has been even though the Communist Party's economy has been growing over time. It's had to fund that growth with capital from American investors. Its its, uh, loan growth has actually declined over the past several years. And whenever any economy grows, loan growth grows. Well, how does the Communist Party continue to grow the economy in the PRC? Well, first, it lies about it. But second, it, it... it borrows as much money as it can from investors from all over the world, and it sells as much stock as it can from investors all over the world. So when you're when your fate when your economy is failing up like that, how do you get more IP? You go steal it. And so the Communist Party's talent recruitment programs, especially their STEM science, technology, technology, engineering, math programs, have have targeted rigorously American research institutions and some estimate that that's a $300 billion a year loss. Some say it's higher. <clears throat> now, there have been a couple of high-profile China initiative cases that have failed recently, either by virtue of a trial that ended uh, without a conviction or the DOJ dropping charges. Uh, and just last week, uh, a number of members of Congress sent a letter to A.G. Garland uh, asking him to investigate the China initiative and especially whether uh, there had been a written or unwritten policy under the China initiative to uh, profile or target people based on race, ethnicity, national origin. Um, in light of that criticism, what do you think the uh, future is of the China initiative? Uh, I think it'll change the name. Uh, but I think there is, is so much, the Communist Party has recruited so many researchers within the United States to send money to send money and ideas uh, and research value back to the PRC that the, you know, the DOJ, you know, the uh, U.S. attorneys will not be able to turn away from that problem. Well, we have just a few minutes left, and you have had such a uh, long and rich experience working with Chinese companies um, that I want to make sure that we touch on some of your personal experiences. Um, so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about your experiences with the Aviation Industry Corporation of China, AVIC, uh, and talk about any, uh, you know, just tell us uh 
uh, what happened and, and any lessons that uh, we should all take away from that. Oh, gosh, Jesse. Uh, AVIC, Aviation Industry Corporation of China, is the biggest defense contractor in China, one of the top three or at least top five state-owned enterprises reporting to, to SASAC. It also reports to SACS. SASAC is the state-owned asset administration and supervision committee. SASTIN is the state administration for science, technology, uh, something in for national defense. For since the mid '90s, we've had some, we've grown some great businesses with with Avic or Avic subsidiaries. Uh, we even grew the, the from nothing to the second biggest wind blade manufacturer in the world. You know, we grew that company uh, starting, you know, 2001 by 2008. It was the second biggest blade maker in the world in, in Baoding, China. Then leaders, then the, the Bo Xilai and the Xi Jinping factions started to collide. So this Guanxi network started to, to collide under the surface. You understand the fatal consequence to some members. When that was happening, decision-making at AVIC-related companies stopped. It froze. It reached paralysis because the the Communist Party members or, or the folks in Communist Party controlled companies were afraid to make a decision without knowing what side of, of the, the bow or sheep line they may fall and who may be the winner. Uh, that even led to uh, AVIC. As part of the blade company growth, we established a company in Texas to develop wind farms around the world. Uh, when the leadership changes began and the paralysis set in at, at AVIC, uh, AVIC wound up hiring our general manager, diverting financing, and embarrassing to say, they even stole a wind farm from us. We wound up in, in dispute resolution in Dallas County, Texas. Uh, we, we won in arbitration. We won at the U.S. District Court level. We won at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and AVIC even appealed, uh, actually had two petitions to the Supreme Court, which the Supreme Court declined to review. So we've had tailwinds that have been really great for creating jobs and good for Americans and Chinese people, and we've had headwinds. And right now, Xi Jinping's Communist Party blows in the headwind direction a whole lot more than is good for Chinese, Americans, or people all over the world. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. I think we are getting to the point where we are out of time, but I do feel like we could go on talking about these topics for much longer than the hour we had today. Um, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, and to our audience, we hope you've enjoyed the program. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Jesse, and I admire the work that you done in the various positions you've been. So thank you for taking time to make this happen. Thank you. Uh, and uh, please also join NSI for our next event, DEF CON panel, Your Infrastructure is Encrypted, Protecting Critical Infrastructure from Ransomware on August 6th from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. For more expert analysis on breaking national security news and events, 
check out NSI's podcasts, Fault Lines, Iron Butterfly, and NSI Live, and our blog, The Skiff. Find us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Mason Natsec. Again, at Mason Natsec. Thank you all very much.